I am so glad that you have joined us here on Tuesday night, live every Tuesday night. Hope you're enjoying the new Deep End format. Hope you're enjoying the live audience format. It is good to see them here. Very handsome and beautiful Deep End audience. And you are with us. And whether you're watching this on your phone or on your smart TV, we're glad that you are watching it. Or on Facebook, of course. Uh, we always want to encourage you to like and subscribe. We are trying to build up the Deep End podcast uh, audience, the online audience, and this is the beauty of technology. We come to you right where you are. Um, and here's a cool idea for some of you. Post to Instagram, you watching the Deep End Podcast. One, one couple recently did this. They were watching it with their family, with their kids, running around in the living room, watching the Deep End Podcast on their smart TV. So cool. So cool. Love it. Hey, share that with us on podcast, on uh, Instagram or on Facebook and hashtag uh, the Deep End TV. Hashtag the Deep End TV. Would love to see it. Maybe we'll post it on our uh, next episode. So we're also on the radio. That's uh, AM 1240 in Woonsocket or FM 99.3 live on Thursday nights, even though it's recorded on Tuesday nights. But on Thursday nights, it's replayed on the radio. So welcome, radio audience. And we are also on the app, the TuneIn app uh, on any device. You might just be listening. And if you're listening, I'm glad you're listening. But I'm so glad that you are with us. Like and subscribe us on YouTube. This is big. So I've eliminated a lot of the social media addresses you'll see there on this slide. I only have the YouTube one because this is where the deep end is going. It's only really going to be uh, on YouTube eventually. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. Type that into your URL or address uh, area and your favorite web browser or internet device and click the like and the subscribe button and also the little bell where you will get notifications on what's happening uh, every time we go live you will get a little notification on your device I think it's so cool that we get to come to you instead of you coming out to a church building it's getting chilly at night audience we are up here in New England it's getting chilly up here it comes here comes the darkness here comes the snow and the blizzards anyway um, we get to come to you. You don't have to actually get your kids out of the house. You don't have to get them dressed. You could be watching the deep end in your underwear right now. And if you are, do not take a picture and hashtag it, the deep end TV, please. <laughs> okay, but you could be watching in your underwear for all I care. I'm just glad you're watching. But this is the cool thing about technology. Coming to you, I'm glad to come to you, and I'm glad that you are tuning in. Let's go to deep end news. Okay, so lots of things happening in the news that we got to talk about. We're going to have a little bit of an extended news section. So if you like the news, this is a great episode for you uh, before we get to the book of Acts. Uh, first off, you know, a lot, lot of bad news out there. Let's, let's be honest. Lots of bad news. It's time for some good news. And we are the people of good news. If you're a Christian, it's good news, right? Because the gospel, that's basically what it is. It is good news for you. And that is the gospel. And I have a piece of good news to start off the deep end news section with. And this is a really touching story. Uh, this happened in uh, Wisconsin uh, and is really incredible here. I think it's Wisconsin. Yeah. Anyway, check this out. Check the title of this article out. Homeless man baptized in church. He vandalized six months earlier, causing $100,000 in damages. I love this story. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Arkansas. Okay, Arkansas. So evidently, uh, this guy was homeless, high on drugs, and he went uh, out to the Conway, uh, I'm sorry, the Central Baptist Church in, uh, Arkansas, in Brenton, Arkansas, and just basically you know, vandalized. It caused over $100,000 in damage. By the way, that's a lot of damage. <laughs> for one man uh, to cause one church. Uh, destroyed church property, laptops, cameras, other electronics. However, months later, this is the article now, he walked in the light of day, standing in the church's baptismal pool, publicly declaring his allegiance to Christ in the same church, given a second chance in life. Quote, I, as I'm starting to understand how God works, he says, I realized I didn't pick the church that night. God picked me, end quote. If I had been, uh, and then he says, if it had been any other church, I think I'd be sitting in prison right now. Evidently, the senior pastor really played a big role in reaching out to this guy and then um, getting the judge in his case to show mercy in the judgment. 
the, the pastor, I want to give a shout out to John, Don Chandler, senior pastor of Central Baptist uh, in this church. He says, you can't preach something for 50 years without practicing it, especially in front of your whole church. Uh, had we not shown some grace to him, everything we've talked about and courage would have gone by the wayside. It was simply the right thing to do. This is not a hardened criminal. This is a young man who had made some bad choices. He was redeemable. Wow. I love it. I love stories like that where we see the grace of God in action. I don't know about you, but that's a good news story. And so we got to think about some of the good news out there. I want to say something to the atheists out there. And this is the thing. Uh, atheist. You can't have it both ways, okay? You either think the Bible is full of nonsense and fairy tales and you're not threatened by it, period, or you realize that there's something to this book and you are threatened by it, period. You can't have it both ways. And I'm talking about the Chinese government. The Chinese government is a communist government. It's an atheist government, but now they are starting a huge war, <laughs> not a military war, but a, a philosophical war on the Bible, basically saying, this is the mandate from the Chinese communist atheistic government, if you can't ban the Bible, alter it. <laughs> I always take, I always like laugh at these kind of stories because if, if the Bible's full of fairy tales, like you say it is, then why are you so threatened by it? Why, why alter fairy tales? If they're not doing anything for anybody, if there's no power to it, then why even mess with it? But there is something to it, is there not? This is why they have to mess with it. And anyway, uh, evidently there was an app developed by uh, um, some Chinese programmers called We Devote. And this was um, a high-demand app. It, it was uh, downloaded over 10 million times. And it is a Bible reading app and devotional known for its aesthetically pleasing design uh, and respect for copyright laws, a rarity in China. Uh, the month after its law, launch, and literally 10 million downloads, uh, Chinese, uh, China's biggest app store listed WeDevote as a recommended app right on its homepage. However, the Communist Party has cracked down on Christianity in recent years, and that meant that both the app and its developers faced increasing government scrutiny. Eventually, they were given a choice, shut down the app or face jail time. And this is kind of interesting, and it just kind of reminds me of what a privilege it is to live in America where we don't face this kind of hostility. There's like a billion Bible apps out there in America's app store. Uh, we don't read them, but they're out there. And uh, this is what happens in other parts of the world, especially these atheistic governments like the government of China. And I just want to like do a little diatribe too here because there's this big thing, there's this big news. I don't know if you've heard this, but the NBA is starting to have a little go with the Chinese government. Um, Hong Kong, which was the only democratic area of the Chinese, uh, it wasn't actually in China, it was part of the uh, British uh, empire for many years. In the 1990s, the British gave Hong Kong back to the Chinese, and now the Chinese are cracking down on the freedoms, the, dem the democratic freedoms that we enjoy in America, that they enjoy in Hong Kong. Now the government is cracking down on those freedoms, and so there's protesters who are fighting for those freedoms to remain. Well, uh, evidently, a, a NBA higher-up tweeted out support for the protesters, and this caused a huge backlash for the NBA because the NBA is trying to expand its reach into the Chinese nation, the nation of China. Because why? Because of the money, baby. Because of the Benjamins. And so they're going in there to kind of get their brand in that government, and now... Uh, they had to retract, this, this uh, executive from the Houston Rockets had to retract his tweet, erase it, apologize for the tweet. Uh, he apologized. Let's think about this, Americans. He apologized. An NBA executive apologized for a tweet that he sent out in support of pro-democracy protesters, pro-American government protesters. And all the NBA now, if it's all over the news, if you're watching this, actually you may not be seeing this, but this is why you come to the deep end so you can hear about this. All the NBA is caving to the Chinese government because they're fearful of losing money and influence into that country. I guess uh, the millions that they're making from Americans is not enough. They want the billions available to them in the Chinese, in the nation of China. But this is what's happening. This is crazy. Um, you can't support a Chinese government like this. You can't support a Chinese government or a nation like this that bans the Bible or seeks to alter it and threaten those who want to dispense it. This is what makes our nation so great and has made our nation so great. The free distribution of God's word, because when God's word is preached, people's lives get changed, hearts get redeemed, hope comes into the human capacity, and people are given a new chance, like this guy in Arkansas who was baptized in a church he vandalized six months ago. This is important news. This is important news. And I just, just wanted to start, 
uh, give you a little heads up on that. Maybe you're not following it, but I'm following it, and it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts when we see these things kind of happen. Okay, now back to a little bit of funny news. Um, I don't know if you heard of this, but there was a company that came up with Jesus shoes. Jesus shoes. This is an uh, inc- incredible story. Um, they took Nike Air Maxes and they uh, f- hollowed out the uh, sole of the shoe and they filled the sole with water from the Jordan River. <laughs> and there's a picture up there uh, of this of this sneaker, which is kind of interesting because can we put the picture back up there full screen? Because if you'll notice, the water is blue. Okay, I've been to the Jordan. The water's not blue. <laughs> Everybody, like, you know, idealizes the Jordan River. Like, it's this wonderful, holy river. It's so beautiful. It's all over the Bible. The Jordan River is like a second cousin to a swamp. I'm just telling you, it is not a pretty body of water. It speaks to the humility of Christ, not the exaltation of Christ. Anyway, um, they're... they're uh, their um, campaign for these shoes is brilliant. They're like, uh, they're saying, here's your chance to walk on water. <laughs> and the Jesus shoes went on sale uh, last week for, check this out, $1,425 each um, for the pair. Okay. Now, <laughs> believe it or not, they were sold out within minutes of going on on sale. Who has this money? NBA players, obviously. That's why they're trying to get into China. That's why. That's why they want those billions in China. They want to buy these sneakers and walk on water like Jesus did. But anyway, uh, $1,400 new. They're sold out. They're being resold, of course, is what everybody does, right? Now they're being resold for upwards of $4,000. Um, this is uh, water from the River Jordan. It would have been blessed by a Brooklyn priest. Man, I got to get in on that game. I got to get in on that game. I will sell you some water blessed by me, and we'll stuff it in your shoes and sell them to you for $4,000. We'll fund a lot of good projects, okay, with that money. I got to get in on that game. That would be a good game, wouldn't it? Anyway, um, interesting news from the shoe uh, department, (laughs) the world of shoes, the world of footwear. Okay, now I want to do another segment. This is a segment we're bringing back from uh, Deep End Season 2. It's called Politicked. I always love it when my head blows up right there. I just think Politicked is a segment that will definitely ruffle some feathers. Uh, This is some interesting news that you might be aware of if you're following the political system that we are in and... um, it's kind of getting crazy out there when it comes to this kind of there's this been cold war. I don't know if you've noticed it. There's been this cold war between two groups of people, Bible believing Christians and the LGBTQIA LMNOP people, all the people who are taking over the alphabet. OK, there there is this cold war has been happening for, you know, since the 1960s between these two groups, because Bible believing people believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. You should be celibate until you're married, you know, you know, procreate naturally, biologically. The gender that you have is the sex that you have, all that stuff. You know, we believe this according to the Bible. And then the LGBT people, they don't believe any of that. They believe we're old, outdated, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, backwoods idiots, basically, and we need to be eradicated or forced into submission into their views. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them do. And I'm talking about the extremes, but I don't know if you tuned in. This is last Tuesday, so it's been a week. Last Tuesday, CNN uh, ran a town hall um, called the uh, Equality in America Democratic Town Hall. These are for the Democratic candidates that are running for the Democratic nomination for the president. And some of the highlights <laughs> are pretty alarming, um, pretty eye-opening, actually. A lot of things that I, as a pastor, have believed that, you know, this is what's happening uh, with the Democratic Party. It's kind of sad to watch. You know, my grandparents were, were hardcore Democrats their whole lives. Um, and I just want to say, as a pastor, as a Christian, to the Democratic Party and everybody who is a Democrat out there, we miss you. <laughs> What happened to you? <laughs> you used to be a great party. Like, you used to stand for things like that matter to people. Now you have kind of slid off the rails. And I'm not telling you who to vote for. I, we have, I have Democrat friends and people who are going to vote for whoever is the Democratic nominee. I get it. That's no problem by, by me. My faith is not in the presidency. My faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is overall. But this is important information for people of faith. The Democratic Party is catering to the LGBTQIA LMNOP crowd like never before, 
And they're not hiding it anymore. They are just coming out and saying, basically, this is what we're going to stand for. Got a couple of highlights for you. Want to play them on the screen. This is Elizabeth Warren from my state, from Massachusetts, saying that taxpayers should fund sex change surgeries of prison inmates. So let's roll this clip. It's on my screen. Senator, quick follow. Speak to your evolution on this. Uh In the 2012 campaign Uh uh, for Senate, you criticized the judge's ruling that granted transition-related surgery to a transgender inmate. You said, I don't think it's a good use of taxpayer dollars. Right. Do you regret that? Yep. No, it was a bad answer. And I, I think it was a bad answer. And I believe that everyone is entitled to medical care and medical care that they need. And that includes people who are transgender, who um, it is the time for them to have gender-affirming surgery. I just think that's important. And the appropriate medical care. So if you help... Okay. It's a view. (laughs) I don't know if it's a good view, but it's a view. This is another example. Uh, This is... Well, let's just roll it. I think you've heard this already, but... This is from your LGBTQ plan, and here's what you write. This is a quote. Freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Do you think religious institutions uh, like colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break. For anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we're going to make that a priority and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. Congressman, thank you. Okay, another view. I mean, I don't know if these are the views that you want to adopt. A couple other things I don't have time to share with video, but um, Elizabeth Warren mockingly suggested that a man with traditional views of marriage could not get a woman to date him. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the mayor from South Bend, Indiana, campaigning on this, making, uh, transmitting HIV knowingly to another person no longer punishable by law. So now it is illegal to transmit HIV to people knowingly, uh, according to Pete Buttigieg's campaign. Uh, These are the policy positions and opinions of the vast majority of the Democratic Party. What is going on? We miss you guys. Where did you go? What rail did you fall off of? (laughs) Because this is crazy talk. Now, this is on top of the already hugely divisive position of Democrats and abor- uh, of Democrats that abortions should not only be legal and should not only be allowable up until the point of birth, but should also be funded by taxpayers at greater levels and that taxpayer money from this country should go to other countries paying for the abortions of people in foreign countries. Yes, this is the Democratic position. This is on their platform. It's called the Helms Amendment. The Helms Amendment is in place to restrict our tax dollars from paying for abortions for people in other countries. You're thinking, oh, that's the Hyde Amendment. No, the Hyde Amendment actually restricts our tax-paying dollars from funding abortions in this country. The Helms Amendment restricts taxpayer dollars from going to abortions in foreign countries. And, and, And the funny thing is, the crazy thing is, the Democrats support repealing both amendments. They want to pay for death everywhere. They want to pay for death everywhere. This is crazy. As Ed Stetzer put it in ChristianityToday.com, great article you should read. He said, quote, this is not President Obama's party anymore. I mean, even President Obama had moderate views about these things and about the limitations of government's uh, encroachment on the le- of the liberties of religious institutions like colleges, Christian colleges, Christian churches, Christian schools, Christian adoption agencies. Do you know how many adoption agencies the Catholic Church has had to shut down because they cannot, in good faith, give children into same-sex families or single-parent families? Do you understand? They shut their organizations down, and the LGBTQIA LMNOP people said, yay, progress. I mean, you're shutting down an abortion. uh, You're shutting down an adoption agency, an adoption agency that happens to disagree with you and this is called progress. This is bad. This is bad for our country. And I got to just say, Democrats, we, we miss you. And you were basically told people of faith, and there's a lot of us, you basically told people of faith that you can kiss off 
<laughs> Honestly, that's what you've done. Now, this is a strategy that their predecessor took, too. Uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election, um, but she did so by basically ignoring uh, the evangelical or Bible-believing uh, segment of the voter population. Uh, they, there was this article in Slate magazine, Slate magazine, not a Christian organization at all, but she basically saying that her big fail was that she refused to even reach out to or talk to any faith-based organization um, during her campaign. So she basically alienated people who believe the Bible is true. Now, her predecessor, Barack Obama, did not do this. In, two, in 2008, he actually reached out to Christian organizations all over the country to say, I want to hear from you and I want to protect your rights as much as I might want to move the country in this direction. What, do you, what are your problems or what are your questions or concerns? Hillary did not do that. She lost. She lost, um, and she's still not over the loss, but she lost. And this is, this is something that's kind of new in the Democratic Party. They're basically not saying, they're not aware that there's a lot of Bible-believing people in this country who have a different opinion. And when you basically say, we're going to go after your tax exemption, you're, you're picking a fight. You're picking a fight that doesn't even need to be picked. Who cares about what we believe? And who cares about what you believe? Let's just go our separate ways. But anyway, these are the same people. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because these are the same people who, after the election, if Donald Trump gets reelected and if evangelicals vote like they did in the last election, in high percentages for Donald Trump, the admitted philandering New York billionaire playboy, okay? And, they, and Bible-believing Christians vote for him in high numbers as they did in the last election. These are the same people, these Democrats right now who are telling us to kiss off are going to be the same people who say, how dare they vote for him? Like, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You can't alienate Bible-believing Christians and then complain when they don't vote for you. And, and let's just be honest about voting for Donald Trump. If you're an evangelical Christian and you voted for Donald Trump, here's what you did. I know what you did. You went like this. <laughs> right? You held your nose and you checked the box and you walked away shaking from the whole experience. Like, because you knew. You know there was only one person that was going to be like somewhat amenable to protecting religious freedom. That's basically what happened. In fact, they did a lot of research about this. Most votes for Donald Trump were not for him. They were actually against the opposition. Oh, I wish we could have a, an election where we're actually voting for someone. It's just so sad. So here's the deal. Back to the sociological argument. There are two lineages alive and well in America right now. There are two lineages. The biblically-minded Christian who holds to a chaste view of sexual morality and my body and what I should do with my body, this person will most likely get married, produce children, see those children as a gift from God, raise those children to honor God and live for God and populate the earth. And when you live for God and do life God's way, you get stronger, you get better, you get healthier, you get wiser, and you live longer. The, 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 the statistics are out there to prove all that I'm saying is true. That's one of the lineages in America right now. The other lineage believes that bearing children is optional based on one station or preference in life. And that sex is ultimately about personal fulfillment and happiness and not propagating the earth and filling it with children. Now, one of those lineages is going to wreck their bodies and hurt themselves and their children, not have as many children, not have as many offspring. And the other one is going to have lots of children and see them as a gift from God and talk about how important they are and how special they are and how they are made in God's image and their life matters. Now, I ask you, basic biology, just basic biology. Which one of those two lineages is going to win in the long term? There's no question. It's going to be this one. It's going to be this one. This one's going to win. Back to the abortion argument for a second, the abortion argument. Rodney Stark, a sociologist from the University of Washington, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He talks about how did Christianity overtake the Roman Empire within 300 years. This came out in the 1990s. He said one of the main contributors to Christianity's conquest of the Roman Empire was that the Roman pagans had no problem aborting their children. Abortion, by the way, is nothing new. The Romans were doing this. They, only they would do it after birth. They would do it after birth. They would take the baby. They would look at it. They would say, yeah, it doesn't look good. So they'd throw it on the trash heap. Literally, this is what the Roman pagans would do. Guess what the Christians would do? The Christians would have babies and say, gift of God, gift from God. We're going to take care of it. We're going to raise it. We're going to make sure it's healthy. And we're going to tell, tell it how to live. And guess what else they would do? 
This is out of Rodney Sartre's book, uh, The Rise of Christianity. They would go to the ash heaps and they would pick up the discarded babies who were still alive and then adopt them and care for them and raise them in the Christian faith. Friends, that is basic biology. When you believe people are valuable and you believe in populating the earth and you believe in having children and then raising those children to be healthy and to honor God with their bodies, the biology and the science backs it up. They last longer, they live stronger, and they eventually overcome the people who disagree. So, Democrats, I want to just say one last time, we miss you. We Christians miss you. We need an option. You're not providing one. You're telling us basically to you know, stick it. <laughs> and I wish you wouldn't. Because here's the deal. It's been betted on time and time and time again that the Christian movement, the biblical movement, the movement that God started with Abraham thousands of years ago is soon going to be cast off into oblivion and irrelevance. And time and time again, whether it be in Israel's day with Elijah or in Babylon with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or with Jesus and his 12 fumbling, bumbling disciples, time and time again, the movement of God has overcome the odds and taken ownership of the world. As the Bible says, we, the meek, inherit the earth. That's the news section. That's my diatribe in politics. I hope you learned something, and I hope you appreciate it. Let's talk about why it applies to where we're going now. Let's talk about the book of Acts. Oh, I love that intro. <laughs> okay, today we are talking about the second half of Acts chapter 2. So we are, we are four episodes in and we are still in Acts chapter 2. Some of you are like, we are never going to get through the book of Acts. Don't worry. There's lots of good stuff to talk about, and we should talk about it all. So last week, we talked about the, the uh, background information on um, the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and tongues and how tongues enabled the disciples to speak in languages they had not previously known and then to share the goodness of God with nations who were in the city of Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebration. Well... Today we're going to continue the talk on Acts chapter 2, but we're going to get into Peter's speech. But before we get into Peter's speech, the first Pentecost sermon, we have to remind you of where we are at in the story and how all these things tie into who we are as Christians. Remember I said last week that there were three major pilgrimage feasts in Israel, Passover, uh, Pentecost, 50 days later, and then Booth's. Uh, towards the end of the year, preceded by the Feast of Trumpets, and how all three of these feasts uh, point to the Christian experience. Uh, Christian experience being that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, we get filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and we get filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can be part of the harvest, the harvest not of crops or grain, but the harvest of souls, and then we harvest these souls through the power of the Holy Spirit for as long as we need to, because one day soon there's going to be a trumpet sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we who are alive are going to join them to be with Jesus in the air forever and we are going to dwell in the rooms. John chapter 14, remember Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many, what? Rooms. The, the, the Greek word there is actually is booths. He's actually doing a direct reference to this third pilgrimage festival in the Jewish calendar year. And he's basically saying, I'm going to prepare those booths for you. And that is heaven and everlasting life still to come. You, Christian, you are supposed to experience the cleansing blood of Jesus. You, Christian, are supposed to one day live in eternity with God in heaven. And yes, you, Christian, are one day supposed to experience, somewhere in between these, the Holy Spirit fullness. Now, this is a big, contentious issue for the church, and I don't know why, but it shouldn't be. We should want the Holy Spirit alive and well in our bodies. Amen, audience? I mean, we should want God to fill us and overflow us so that we do what God wants us to do. Have you ever tried to do what the Bible says? It's stinking hard. Anybody agree? Yeah. I mean, come on. It's, it stinks sometimes. Like sometimes the last thing I want to do is what the Bible says. I, I can't do it. Have you ever tried to do it? Like, have you ever like really thought, like you wake up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to obey. 
And then before you know it, you're on the way to work and somebody cuts you off and somebody doesn't treat you right and you're swearing your head off and you're flipping them the bird and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I lost my whole testimony in the first 15 minutes of this day. <laughs> it's what happens. It's what happens because guess what? Guess what? Here's the truth that we don't want to come to terms with, but we need to. We can't do it. We can't do it. If we could do it, the Holy Spirit would not be necessary. But we can't do it. And because we can't do it, God sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. And we talked about this, and I, feel, I finished out last week by saying this. The result of being spirit-filled, though, is not for you just to enjoy feeling God all over you, as much as that is a powerful thing and you should have that experience. But this, the, the, the true result of being spirit-filled is the amplification of the message of Jesus, not just Jesus generally, but Jesus' resurrection, not just in our speech, but in our lives. That the Holy Spirit comes into us to resonate and to... Uh, reaffirm in our spirits, Jesus is alive. Death is not the end. I will live again. He's coming back soon. I have hope. The Holy Spirit reaffirms that in my being. So that means that I can be generous with my money because this life is not the end. That means that I can be chaste with my sexuality. Why? Because it's not about getting all the pleasure in this life that I can. And that pleasure looks like pleasure, but it ends up in pain. No, I know that I am made in the image of God. The Holy Spirit comes and reaffirms this truth into me so that I can live for God's glory and not my own. And ultimately, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is the world-altering event that splits history between B.C. and A.D. and changes your life from hopeless to hope-filled. And that's what the Holy Spirit is sent to do. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, this is what they do. They start living with hope. And then they start proclaiming the power of Jesus' resurrection to people who had put him on the cross. And what happens in Acts chapter 2 is phenomenal because Peter stands up and preaches to the very people who he formerly couldn't even confess Jesus to just several weeks earlier. You remember when he denied Jesus, he denied Jesus to a little girl, a little 12-year-old girl called him out on being a follower of Jesus, and he swore, and he flipped her the bird, and he did all the things that we do when we get mad in the morning on the way to work, and, and then he, you know, wept, and he realized he blew it because, you know what, you can't do it in and of yourself in your own strength. Peter couldn't do it. Peter needed the Holy Spirit. So do you, and when Peter got the Holy Spirit, when Peter got the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, this is the beautiful thing, the guy who kowtowed to the little girl and the guy and the people who asked him if he was a father and said, and he said no and he denied it, that same guy stands up and preaches the most powerful message they had ever heard, and 3,000 people get saved. It's a powerful story. But I want to talk today about this topic, the five signs of a church that God grows, the five signs of a church that God grows. And that's what we're going to uh, get out of Acts chapter 2, the second half of the chapter, because there's a couple of things that I want to make sure we're aware of. There's a difference between a growing church and a church that God grows. Uh, pastors who are listening, you know what I'm talking about. There is a difference between a growing church and a church that God grows. And it is entirely possible to grow a church disconnected from God. It's entirely possible. There's a lot of churches that grow because of... Uh, peripheral realities. For instance, there's a church that I know of that, that grew leaps and bounds down in the South, and, and they don't preach the gospel. They don't preach Jesus. They don't preach that stuff. They preach other stuff, and it's growing, you know, leaps and bounds. Why? Well, because it's a denominational named church, and a lot of people who are moving from the North in the cold down into this warm area in the South are relocating to that area, and they need a church that they affiliated with up in the North, and guess where they go? They go to that church, even though it's not preaching the gospel. Now, that's just cultural growth. That's not God's growth. That's cultural growth. It's also possible to grow a church that's very anti-Christian, anti-Jesus. There's many cults that spring up all over the world, all over the country. Many, many cults that control people and manipulate people and abuse people and treat people terribly and, 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 and people give their lives to these communities and, and then they die. Like I think about Jim Jones. Jim Jones, the famous preacher in the 1970s who took a group of Christians, 800 Christians, and relocated them to the jungles of Guyana. Relocated them from the beautiful city of San Francisco to Guyana in the name of Jim Jones, named the area where they moved to Jonestown, and then a few weeks in, when the, when, the, when the government was starting to ask questions about it, 
They basically shot a American a U.S. congressman, and then they all killed themselves in mass suicide by drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. That's where we get the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid from, right there, Jim Jones. The church grew. There's a distinction between the church that grows and the church that God grows. I want your church, I want my church to be a church that God grows. It's entirely possible to have a church disconnected from the gospel and growing. We don't want that. We don't want that. I want my church to be the church that God grows. Here's the signs, and we've got to go into this passage. Now remember that Acts chapter 2 starts with them speaking in tongues, but the tongues are not what you think they are. They are not these ecstatic utterances of other languages not known to the audience, as often happens today in churches. These were known languages. Remember, it says in verse 8 that we hear each of us in our own language. What does he say at the end? We hear them, verse 11, telling in our own language or tongues the mighty works of God. So the gift of the Holy Spirit brings tongues, but tongues is not confusing to that audience. It is clarifying. It clarifies the message of Jesus. And that is an important thing. Now, um, will you just look with me really quickly? Because in verse 9, it unpacks all the places that these people are from. Now, this is a pretty cool image for us to check out. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, that's where it's really called, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome. So there's 15, in that list, there's 15 regions or people groups. Now, I have done some work. Okay, and I want to put a map on the screen because this is the known world at the time of Pentecost. This is the known world. And this is, uh, if you zoom in there on your screen, you'll see. This is the, um, the Mediterranean Sea there, and then you have the Arabian Peninsula to the southeast, and then you have the Black Sea to the north, and, and what we call today, uh, this is, just for reference, this right here is modern-day Turkey. Uh, just for reference, okay? So down here is Egypt and so on and so forth. Well, what happens is we hear in Acts chapter 2 where the people are from, the Jewish diaspora, the people who were Jewish, uh, that first, we have to know this, it's in our Bibles, in 858, I'm sorry, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, sacks the city, and drags um, the, Jerusa- uh, the, the uh, members of the royal family and the very educated and very you know, advanced and strapping young men into captivity, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and tries to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian customs. Well, a lot of people went with them after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then after the fall of Babylon, way over here, um, the Jews dispersed. They went all over the world. Many of them went back to Jerusalem, but many of them did not. And uh, then uh, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, you might have heard of him, He conquers the known world. He basically takes Greek culture and spreads it all over the known world. We call it Hellenism. And this Greek culture is spread uh, all throughout the world, and a lot of Jews adopt the Greek culture but remain Jewish. Some don't remain Jewish. Some do. But they become what we call Hellenized Jews. These are culturally amenable Jews, but they're still Jews. And here's what you do when you are a cultural Jew, not a true Jew. When you're a cultural Jew, you go back to Jerusalem for those three festivals. Why? Because that's part of your culture. Now, for many of them, maybe they, maybe they believed in it. Maybe they still read the Torah. Maybe they still read the scriptures. But maybe for a lot of them, they were just doing it out of habit. They were just doing it out of, this is what you do. At Pentecost, we go to Jerusalem. At, at, at the Feast of Tabernacles, we go to Jerusalem. At Passover, we go to Jerusalem. Three times a year, we pack up the kids. It's a great time. We pick up some corn dogs on the way and all that kind of stuff. No, not corn dogs because they're Jewish. But anyway, they, they go into the city of Jerusalem three times a year, and they just do their religious thing, and they leave. But one day, one day on that sacred holiday of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came into the Jesus people, And all those people start speaking these languages. And I just want to put this up on the screen. This is so cool to me because I want you to notice, and I've highlighted and circled the 15 regions on the screen where the people on the day of Pentecost were from. Now, just look at this. Uh, Pentecost happens here. I've circled Jerusalem, okay? Look at where the areas are that these people come from. And if you will just think for a second, it's pretty cool. Um, North... South, isn't this cool? East, 
and west all the way to Rome. Guess what it's saying? This is what it's saying. It's saying that the gospel that God wants to spread throughout the earth through his people filled with the Holy Spirit is for the whole world. The north, the south, the east, the west. And we talked about this in Revelation. Remember we talked about the four corners of the earth? Let's put this back up on the screen real quick, Mike. The four corners of the earth, this is what it means. The north, the south, the east, and the west. These are corners. (laughs) And we talked about this uh, back in season two with the first horseman of the apocalypse. A lot of people think it's bad. I don't think it's bad. I think the first horseman of the apocalypse is Jesus, the, the, the guy in the white horse, right, with the crown on his head. And he goes out throughout the four corners of the earth and he divides and he conquers. Basically, he brings the gospel to the nations and the gospel by nature divides and conquers. The the gospel is dividing our nation right now. We just talked about that in the news. The gospel is dividing people from their friends and their families. Why? Because when you get saved and somebody who you know in your former life wasn't saved, there's a little bit of hostility there. Hopefully not from you, Christian, but maybe from them who don't understand why you love this Jesus guy so much all of a sudden. I thought I was your number one person and they don't understand it. Well, guess what? That's just what the gospel does. It divides and conquers. It conquers your heart and divides the people and everybody in this world. Everybody in this world is divided on one person, Jesus. That's it. You, you say there's thousands of different kinds of people. No, there's only two kinds of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians, those who love Jesus and those who don't. That's the whole world. And it's the job of those who are Christians to share with those who aren't Christians the good news of Jesus Christ. But this is just such a cool image that all these areas, north, south, east, and west, God's heart is for them. And so it just brings me to this, this passage. The the, the passage of Acts chapter 2 is going to end with, the promises for you, verse 39, for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I just want to emphasize this phrase, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that salvation is God's work on your heart, not your work to get to God. Big difference. A lot of people think, well, I put my faith in Jesus. I found him. I came to Jesus. These phrases that we throw out there as Christians that, you know, they're harmless in a way, but in, some, in a theological sense, they're not good. Like, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. He found you. You were lost. He was found. He was fine. He knew who he was from eternity to eternity. He found you. Uh, I came to Jesus. Well, not really. He came to you. <laughs> he came and he started to process through whatever friend, through whatever relationship to bring you to a place where you realize that you were hopeless without him. That's his work of grace upon your heart. And why do I emphasize that? Because that's what the book of Acts emphasizes. Again and again, we're going to see this theme. It is God's work to save people. Uh, and I will just finish up this segment by saying, look at this in the last, the last verse of Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts chapter 2, the church was defined by this, and the Lord, and the Lord, what did the Lord do? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did people come into the church? The Lord added them. Very huge distinction here. We've got to read the Bible for what it says. And some of you, I'm asking you, please, please, please do not read into the Bible what you were taught theologically by someone. Go to the Bible and let the Bible inform your theology. Don't read into it. Read out from it. And right here we see that the Lord adds people to the church. People don't add people. Now, we might be used to add people, but ultimately it's the Lord who adds them. As Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God provides the increase. You, Christian, if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because God came and got you and saved you and brought you to himself and then added you to the church. And this is very, very important theology. It might not be what you were brought up being taught, but it's true according to the Scriptures. Okay, so anyway, let's get into the text because it's important. Verse 7, it says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these Galileans? And they say, We hear all these languages. And it's just an amazing thing here that happens in Acts chapter 2, that the church is empowered to speak God's word. And they were perplexed, and they were amazed, and then it says this, what does it mean? Some of them said, but others said, mocking, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. And, uh, you know, this is the two responses we talked about to the gospel. There's going to be some who uh, receive it, and there are going to be some who reject it. But let's get into Peter's response. 
And I love Peter's response. It begins here in verse 14. This is the first Pentecost sermon. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's 12 noon our time. This is what, he says, was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, a couple of points about this passage. First off, I love the fact that Peter addresses the fact they thought they were drunk. I mean, does anybody think that's pretty cool? He's like, hey, wait, 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 whoa, we're not drunk. <laughs> it's, only, it's only 12 noon. Come on, you all know nobody gets drunk at noon. I just see the audience being like, oh, yeah, that's right. They don't get drunk at noon. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Anyway, but it's, it also speaks to what good preaching does. What good preaching does is it challenges assumptions. It challenges assumptions of what people think about the church, about Jesus. Good preaching counters preconceived notions of what people assume Christianity is all about. Now, think about this for yourself. Don't you have friends, and you tell them you're a Christian, and automatically they assume something, don't they? Automatically they assume that you are what? You tell me. The labels are out there. Bigoted, uh, uh, homophobic, uh, outdated, fundamental, Bible thumper, hater, whatever. You know, hypocrite. That's a big one. Hypocrite. Okay, well, they're making assumptions there. And a lot of people say, well, I don't like Christians, but I got a, I got a question for you. Have you met real Christians? Because <laughs> I, get, I get that there's a lot of weirdos out there, a lot of bad Christians, a lot of people that give Jesus a bad name. They're not Christians, probably. But have you met some real Christians, some people who are genuine in their faith, who love the Lord, who love, who love the church, who are generous, who are kind, because they're out there. And if you haven't met them, you got to ask God to open your eyes to some, because there's some good Christians out there. Anyway, Paul, uh, Peter goes on and he says this. He's quoting Joel now. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Okay, huge point that Peter is making here. First, he's quoting the prophet Joel. Joel wrote about this in chapter two of Joel's uh, of the book of Joel in our Bibles. It was written um, about 600 years before Peter says this. And Peter does something here that's very important for us to understand. He interprets the Bible's past, the scriptures in the past, to understand his present. This is what good Bible teaching does. Good Bible teaching does not dismiss the Bible. It goes to the Bible to interpret the times in which we live. And for Peter specifically here on the day of Pentecost, he was saying, this is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Like what you're seeing here through Jesus and through us and through the Holy Spirit right now, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. And here's how you have to understand the Old Testament and New Testament distinction. The Old Testament is all about what happens in the first five books of the New Testament. And then the rest of the New Testament is interpreting and helping us to understand what that means and how we should live. So Old Testament pointing to Christ, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts about Christ and the church and then the rest of the letters of the New Testament helping us to understand what does that mean? What does those five books and what happened in those five books mean? And basically, look at the first thing that, Paul, that, that Peter talks about. He says, this is what's happening. God told us through Joel that in the last days he would give his spirit to all flesh and then notice sons, daughters, young men, old men, and then male servants. And check this out. This might not be a big idea for us, but for the ancient world, this was huge. Even female servants, because there was a case system to the old world, the ancient world. Female servants were the lowest class of persons on the planet. Not good, not right, not saying it's fair, but it was just a fact. And basically, Joel was saying, even the lowest, most lowly kind of person that you could think of is going to have the Spirit of God on them, which is good news for you, good news for everybody. The Holy Spirit is not for the super class of Christians. The Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not for the special elite religious of among us. This is beautiful. It means that God can use anyone. It means that God can pour out his spirit on someone that you would least expect him to use. And that person can be turned around and then used to bring the gospel to the nations. It's just a powerful promise. 
Anyway, wanted to bring you back to this point. The disciples looked to Scripture from the past in order to understand their present. And some of you need to do this. When you don't know what to do in your life, when you're struggling, when you're wrestling, when you're confused, you need to go to the Scriptures. What do you pick up first when you're struggling? What do you pick up first? I wonder. Do you pick up your cell phone and call your friend or text someone for an answer? Or do you go to the Scriptures? Do you go to God's Word? Because God's Word is there to help you. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. In other words, the Scriptures are there to encourage you. The Scriptures are there to give you and fill you with a renewed hope about your life so that you can do life the way God wants you to do it. Take a look at the Scriptures to help, of the past to help you interpret your present. Verse 19, moving on. I will show wonders in the heavens, signs in the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, what's Peter doing with this passage? This is also from the book of Joel. Basically, he's talking about revelation content here. We talked about this in season two. The, the moon uh, being turned to blood, the sun being turned to darkness. We talked about all that. The end of the age. signs, cosmic signs of the end of the age are on the, uh, are on the end bracket of the church age. So what Peter's doing is he's framing for us in Acts chapter 2 that what starts in Pentecost ends when Jesus comes again. What starts in Pentecost ends when Jesus comes again. So Joel was talking about this. God would be filling people, average, ordinary people, people no one would expect. God will use them in powerful ways to change the world until he comes again. And that's a powerful truth. That's a powerful truth for you. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus God delivered uh, Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the define, uh, sorry, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, sign number one <laughs> of a church God grows is that they preach the gospel. A church that preaches the gospel. Now Jesus is preached here. But please understand, it is not just Jesus generally. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that is preached. You have to understand that that's the message of the church. There's a lot of churches that deny the miraculous. They don't believe that God does the miracles, and, and, and they always do this. They say that the miracles of the Old Testament, they weren't real stories. They were analogies. They were fables, like Aesop's fables. They were mythological stories to inspire faith. Well, if you take that stance, then the resurrection is mythological because the resurrection of Jesus was a miracle, okay? People, don't, people who are dead do not come back to life. It was a miracle that Jesus was raised to life. God did this. So the moment that you deny the miraculous in the Bible, you lose the entire message of Christianity. We have got to remember that and understand that the preaching of the gospel is not preaching what you do and do not do as a Christian. Preaching the gospel is telling people that Jesus was dead, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day, and he is alive. And there's something to that message that changes people's lives. Anyway, let's go on, because i got to get to five before we're done here. So he preaches the gospel, he tells them about Jesus, and then he says, look at this line in verse, I just want to underscore this line in verse 23. This Jesus, and this is an important phrase, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, and check this word out, foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I want to ask you a question because this passage is going to help you with something I'm sure you wrestle with. Do you wrestle with the existence of evil in the world? There's a theological phrase for this. It's called theodicy. Why do bad things happen? You wrestle with this? I'm sure you all wrestle. Why would bad things? Why does God allow bad things? Okay, look at what this passage is telling us. Jesus suffered what I believe is the most singular act of evil, the greatest singular act of evil the world has ever seen. The innocent Jesus was brutally beaten, whipped, and then hung on a cross, and it happened at the hands of lawsmen unjustly and immorally. The innocent Jesus suffered 
the greatest evil the world has ever seen. This was not just an innocent child. This was the son of God. This was someone who healed the sick, cast out demons, and helped people. And he was murdered brutally. Evil came upon him. And notice that the Bible says he was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. And here's how you understand evil as a Christian. Because although that evil happened to Jesus, here's what God did with it. God used that evil to bring about the greatest good the world has ever heard, the salvation of your soul. The evil that Jesus experienced was for your good. How do I understand evil? Here's how I understand it. God is going to use it. I might not understand it at the time. I might not like it. It might hurt. It might cause me to question God as many of the great prophets did in the past, but God is going to use it. I don't know how, but he's going to use it. I think about Joseph with his brothers at the end of Genesis. This brothers, Joseph, whose brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery, wanted to kill him, and he spent years in prison. Then he spent years in slavery, and he rose to the highest ranks in Egypt in the ancient world, and his brothers come back to him at the end of the story, and they say, please forgive us, please forgive us, we're sorry for what we did. And what does he say? He says, whatever you intended for evil, God used for good, the saving of many lives. In other words, how do we understand evil? We understand evil by knowing that our God is in charge of it and will use it for our good and for his good. Anyway, moving forward, verse 25, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me as my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of lives. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Okay, going on, because we've got to finish this out. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw that the, and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see corruption in his flesh. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Boom. Mic drop moment. And what happens? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? Good preaching produces a response in the human heart. Good preaching, anointed by the Holy Spirit, produces a change of heart. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this harkens back to the Old Testament, where God said through Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, the same people who couldn't obey the Bible in the Old Testament, God said to those people, I will give them one heart. Look at this, Ezekiel 11. And a new spirit I will put within them. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. And they will be my people. And look at the end. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Verse uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. I will give them a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And look at this. For those of you who struggle to do God's work, to do God's will and to obey. Look, through the Holy Spirit, I will cause you, love that, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit comes into your life to help you do what God wants you to do. You need the Holy Spirit, otherwise you can't do it. So it says this in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What shall we do? Repent to be baptized. By the way, 3,000 people are baptized that day. And uh, just so you know, just so you know, I've been to Israel where this happened. This is a picture of the southern wall of the temple where they probably baptized. And you'll see all this area right here. And I've been there myself. It's pretty beautiful in Jerusalem. These are hundreds of what the Jews call mikvahs. Mikvahs were baptismal pools that they used in the ancient world. And if you go to that area, the southern wall, the tent is still there. The, the, the remains are still there. It's beautiful. Hundreds of these things, um, they're baptismal pools. And you'll notice seven steps down. There's two steps in the water you can't see there. And then there's a little dividing wall here. Seven steps up, there was a little ritual. You walked down one set of stairs, got cleansed in water, walked up another set of stairs on the other side. 
so as not to walk in the old ways that you walked in. Pretty cool. But there's hundreds of these in the ancient city of Jerusalem, still there to this day. You can go see them. In fact, I have this video here of me uh, playing it. That's where I was, standing over them. And so you wonder, like, the Old Testament, I mean, you wonder about these stories in the New Testament. How could they have baptized 3,000 people in one day? It's because there was hundreds of pools waiting to be used right there. And so 120 people baptizing 3,000 people in one day, totally possible, totally cool. The Bible is true. Verse 42, here's the results of Peter's preaching. Here's the church, the church that God grows. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, first three things, devotion to fellowship. Fellowship is you get together with the church. Second, breaking of bread and prayers. These are the ordinances. These are the practice, the spiritual practices of the church. You could talk about this all day, but you are meant for spiritual practices. Your lives need them. And signs and wonders were being done, helping people. And they had all things together uh, in common. They were together. The next verse, it says this, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and in having favor with all the people. And again, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I got to get to these signs or we're never going to be done. And the good news is the other four signs are all in those passages. Number, sign number one of a church that God grows the gospel is preached, but number two, a church that eats and prays together. Do you have people that you eat with who are Christian? Do you have people who you have intimate relations? There's something that happens when you eat with someone. I don't know if you guys know this, but you know you can know someone, and then you can go out to lunch with them, and how many know the relational quotient just goes up a couple of ticks? Come on, you know what I'm talking about? Well, you got to eat with some Christians. You got to have fellowship together and pray with them. Thirdly, a church that meets the needs of others. A church that meets the needs of people will grow because needs are supposed to be met by those who can meet them. That's what our job is as the church. Number four, a church that gathers together for worship and discipleship. You can't be part of the church if you're not gathering with the church. You gotta get to the church. You gotta be a part of the family. And so I believe that when we gather together, we worship, we grow in discipleship, we learn about the Christian faith, we walk with each other through the hard times, the bad times, the good times, the great times, we disciple one another and we gather together. I believe a church like that, God grows. And then lastly, number five, a church that serves others. Churches are, all these signs are right there in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. These are the church, this is what the church is supposed to do. They sold their possession. They gave to anyone who had need. They gathered together. By the way, just an important point too. They gathered at the temple, and they broke bread in their homes. This is big gathering, which we call the weekend at Waters Church here, and other churches do this. This is called the small group. And if you don't have a small group, you need one. You need to have that intimate fellowship. These are the signs of a growing church, and the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. So, Acts chapter 2, summing it all up, Here's the deal. Where are you on the feast calendar of Israel? Too many Christians are what I call Passover-only Christians, saved by the blood, and that's enough. And they're just waiting for heaven. And that's not where you want to stay. I'm just telling you right now, that's not where you want to stay. You need the fire of Pentecost. Are you here? <laughs> Fire emoji when you should be here so that we can help get others here. I want to close with a story. A lot of you in my church know that I'm a huge fan of a guy I've never met. His name is D.L. Moody. He was an 18th, uh, 19th century evangelist. But he was a successful pastor and Sunday school teacher for many years. And he tells this story of how when he would preach, there was three women in the front row of his church. And every time he preached, these three women would be praying. And it kind of bothered him. And, and by the way, that bothers us preachers. When we're preaching and you're sitting there praying, we're a bit ticked. 
<laughs> Pay attention. So one day he finally couldn't take it anymore. He got down and he asked them, what are you praying about? And they said, oh, we're praying for you. He said, well, what are you talking about? You're praying for me. Pray for the people. And he said, no, they said, these three women, they said, no, we can tell you need power. And he said, I need power. And then he said, I thought I had power. And they said, no, 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 you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's his words, quote, I had a large Sunday school, the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at the time. I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these godly women kept praying for me, and their earnest talk about being anointed by the Holy Spirit got me thinking. I asked them to come talk with me, and we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing from the Holy Spirit, and there came a great hunger to my soul, and I did not know what it was, and I began to pray as I never did before. He prayed for the Holy Spirit to fill him. He says, I really felt that I did not want to live if I could not have this power for service. He says, instantly the hunger increased. I was praying all the time that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. And then this is his testimony. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he spoke, of which he went to heaven and he couldn't talk about it. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I asked him to stay his hand. I went preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths. Yet hundreds of people were converted at my word. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. This man who once had the whole biggest church in Chicago needed the Holy Spirit. And by the way, once he got the Holy Spirit, D.L. Moody, according to statistics, traveled 100,000 miles around the world and spoke to over 100 million people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of Pentecost. You need it. I need it. The church needs it. Let's pray that God will give it. Join us every week on The Deep End. Click and subscribe to all the social media that we have available to you. We thank you for being here. I know I went really long today, but there's a lot to talk about. I will see you hopefully next Tuesday night on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.